In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Omajushri, please accomplish this. Greetings, fellow Shadrites. Welcome, good evening. Hey, so uh, tonight we have two readings. One is uh, a collection of excerpts from the book uh, uh, Dreaming Yourself Awake. <laughs> Interesting idea. And the other is from a book called Stilling the Mind. Yet another interesting idea. <laughs> sort of a dream. The first book's about dreaming, and the second book is sort of a dream. This dream of being able to still your mind. It's a lifelong dream for some of us. <laughs> I thought I would dive in first to the book, Stilling the Mind, uh, starting on page... Uh, 61, 61. So, um, this is the first of two books that Alan Wallace has produced that is directly focused on presenting the material um, provided in a text called The Vajra Essence by Dujum Lingpa. which is a commentary on a shorter text called the Sharp Vajra of Awareness, Tantra. Uh, and actually, I shouldn't say by Dujumlingpa. They were both revealed, or to revealed to Dujumlingpa as visionary experiences. Uh, so sort of in the class of Terma. And we're uh, related to some experience, some uh, idea of a uh, previous lifetime that he had as a student of a gentleman named uh, Mr. Sambhava. His first name is Padma, Padma Sambhava. And uh, so the first, the, the Vajra essence of, uh, sorry, the sharp Vajra of awareness tantra is very short like 15 pages or so, and pithy. And then the Vajra Essence is a long commentary on that. And um, uh, the commentary occurs between various bodhisattvas, such as we see here, the bodhisattva, great boundless emptiness. Not quite sure what boundless would be in uh, Sanskrit or Tibetan, but it's a catchy name. That's his name. And uh, he's uh, interviewing the uh, Samantabhadra, the Buddhist, the uh, Dharmakaya Buddha, Samantabhadra, as his teacher. And uh, Dujum Lingpa sort of witnesses this encounter, presumably, or it's a little unclear where Dujum Lingpa fits in in this vision, 
whether he's like a, a participant in the audience of uh, these two guys. And, and there's other bodhisattvas that chime in, so there's a few of them sitting around. But Or whether um, Dujum Lingpa is one of the bodhisattvas, that's unclear. Anyway, taking the mind is the path. There's a course of, about that, isn't there? As a prelude to great, uh, Bodhisattva Great Boundless Emptiness's next question to Samantha Bhadra, let's briefly review. The request was initiated that initiated the whole conversation was please grant us the profound pith instructions to actually achieve the state of a fully perfected Buddha, Samantha Bhadra, one lifetime and with one body. And by the way, that's sort of like a hint that if you ever get the chance to ask a question of uh, a Buddha or somebody as realized as a Buddha, this is a good thing to ask them. Instead of like something meaningless. Uh, let's see. After the dialogue uh, flowing from that request, Bodhisattva Great Boundless Emptiness probed further in terms of context. The question of Dzogchen versus the more common Dharma practices of engaging in the wholesome and avoiding the unwholesome. Following the teacher's response, the questions became still more specific and detailed, addressing the cultivation of Bodhisattva, of Bodhicitta rather, from the Dzogchen perspective. So the text unfolds through a process of ever more subtle questioning of the teacher. The questioner began with his primary motivation, the initial request, and then pursued derivative motivations in order to attain a clear and more detailed picture. The Bodhisattva's next question refers back to the first great boundless uh, Bodhisattva, great boundless emptiness, requested, O teacher Bhagavan, please teach us the profound path that liberates disciples. He, presumably meeting the teacher Bhagavan, Samatabhadra, replied, O noble one, entrances to the city of great liberation appear as many avenues of skillful means and wisdoms. There's many avenues, many paths. But ultimately, taking the mind as the path is the quest for the true way. Ultimately, they all come together in this aspect of what he's calling taking the mind as a path, but she'll explain. Then, once you have determined the ground, you may take ultimate reality as the path. So you take two objects as the path. One gets you partway there, the mind gets you uh, partway there, and then at a certain point you switch to ultimate reality. Once you've determined what's called the ground, you can do that switch. Between these two options, first here is the way to take the mind as the path. Teacher begins by providing the context. There's not just one path, there are multitude. Whatever you follow, however, if it bypasses your mind, there's no way it's going to reach the city of liberation. You must go through your mind. The starting point is right here. Now, if I were to ask you to look at your mind for one minute and then report, you could tell me something, couldn't you? Using whatever abilities you have for introspection, you observe. And what you perceive is the surface level of your mind. You might say this is the gateway to your mind. Your mind includes everything, ranging from that which you can immediately introspect and report on all the way down to the very ground of the ordinary mind, or what he's calling the ground of the ordinary mind. As Western psychologists have recognized, most of the mind's activity is subconscious, like an iceberg, the bulk of it is under water, hidden. When the teachings say, take the mind as your path, that means you make that which is subconscious 
conscious. You probably notice this as you go through the days, hours, days, months, years in meditation, that things that you had long forgotten, were unaware of, never knew you thought about, pop to the surface while you're meditating. Strange little snippets of scenes from experiences you had in the past that you had no idea you had stored in your mind come to the surface. Much of it seems meaningless and spurious. You must point your laser right down through the strata of your mind until you arrive at the ground of your mind. And he's, he'll clarify, but he means here what he's calling the natural ground of the mind, which is the uh, samsaric mind, the olive vijnana. Because you can't immediately go through the valley of vijnana to the true ground. So you have to take uh, one train part of the way there, and then you have to switch to another train, just like going from Manhattan to uh, certain places in the Bronx or Brooklyn. You can't say, I'm going to skip that and just go right to the end. doesn't work that way. You can't leave your jerkness behind. Rather profound quote. <laughs> you cannot leave your jerkness behind. He's talking about the movie, obviously. You have to go through it, not around it. You can't just come up with a lot of cool visualizations and pretend you're something you're not and then think you can skip your mind in the process. Visualizations are fine. Stage generation is important, yet you must still confront your mind. You have to go right through it. That is taking the mind as the path. You need to go down to the very, you need to go to the very ground of the ordinary mind. This requires shamatha. You don't need vipassana for that nor Dzogchen, nor Bodhicitta, but you do need to go right to the ground of your ordinary mind and let the mind settle unforced. When the mind is finally quiescent, I added finally, no turbulent thoughts or emotions arising, it is relaxed, still, luminous, and free from effort. And that is shamatha. Then once you've determined the ground, the relative ground, the ground of word in your mind, that becomes your platform for realizing the empty nature of your own mind, its lack of inherent nature and the emptiness of all other phenomena as well, both subjective and objective. Thereby you take the ultimate reality as the path. So just to give you a little uh, sneak peek at the future of this text, is that in the Vipassana section he he goes through a rather traditional Mahayana investigation of the emptiness of phenomena, subjective and objective, the two types of ego and egolessness or self and selflessness. Again, the Sanskrit term translated as ultimate reality is dharmata. So once you've arrived at the ground of the ordinary mind, you're ready to break through the reified sense of your own mind by means of vipassana, shattering that reified structure of awareness of the Aliya Vishnana, and then dropping to the true ground, to the deepest level of, or final level of ground awareness, primordial consciousness, your Buddha nature. Having fathomed your Buddha, Buddha nature, then you be then that that then becomes your path until you fathomed your ultimate reality, your relative mind is the path. The Buddha said that. 
declared, the wise one straightens the fluttering, unsteady mind, which is difficult to guard and hard to restrain, as Fletcher stretches, straightens rather an arrow shaft. Likewise, he likened the mind to a lute that must be tuned perfectly, not too tight, not too slack. You tune your instrument, in this case the mind, until the pitch is perfect, and then you play, you practice Vipassana. Then on that instrument the mind to realize the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena, and then you practice Dzogchen to realize Rikpa. That's the Dzogchen twist, or the Vajrayana twist, is that after you realize the inherent, uh, the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena, then you do some, some, uh, Vajrayana stuff. In the Nyingma tradition, you practice Dzogchen to realize Rikpa. In the Mahamudra tradition, you would practice Mahamudra to realize co-emergence. So the main question was, what's the path that liberates us in one lifetime so we become a Buddha in one lifetime with one body? Right here we're given the answer, ultimately taking the mind as the path, as the quest for the true way. Then once you've determined the ground, applying that you have attained, sorry, ascertained your substrate consciousness by achieving shamatha, then you may take the ultimate reality of emptiness as the path between these two options, taking the mind as your path, which is shamatha, taking ultimate reality's path, which is vipassana. First, here is the way to take your mind as the path, shamatha. At the outset, disciples who maintain their samayas initially train their minds by way of the common outer preliminaries, namely the four thoughts that turn the mind, meaning the four thoughts that turn the mind towards dharma and away from the endless pursuit of happiness through samsara. And those thoughts, jeez, uh, I can never remember them. What are they called? The four... Immeasurables. No, they, they, they are they are immeasurable, but they're reminders. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for reminding me of them. The four outer preliminaries are the four reminders, which are impermanence, suffer, uh, death, suffering of samsara. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, pre uh, precious human birth is first. Impermanence and death is second. And uh, karma is karma. third, and fourth is the sufferings of samsara, like the feast before the executioner leads you to your death. And the uncommon seven inner preliminaries, which we saw last week or so, that list, which is not the Lojong slogans, it's a different list, that includes the uh, inner preliminaries of, nun, of the uh, famous Nundro practices. Subsequent to that, or subsequently, the way to follow the progressive path of the main practice is like this. First, retreat to a secluded forest, pray to your guru, and merging your mind with your gurus, relax for a little while. <laughs> so, that's uh, Samantabhadra speaking, and for Samantabhadra, a little while may not be what a little while means to us. <laughs> You know, in, in Buddha time, it's in Sambhogakaya Buddha time, or I mean, actually Dharmakaya. Okay, so then let's skip to page 88. And uh, the mind's essential nature. And um, the Bhagavan, 
which is an epithet for the Buddha. Oh, Vajra of mind, investigate dimension, the dimensions of your so-called mind, then determine and recognize its essential nature. Are external space and the internal mind the same or different? These are trick questions. You have to answer a quiz right from the start. You knew that, didn't you? You all went through the quiz to get into the Rime Shadra, right? What is the quiz for entering the Rime Shadra? Does anyone remember what the quiz was? What I asked to people when they asked to join? What's for dinner? <laughs> What's for No. Go on. Well, I have uh, to answer the test questions to get into the advanced class at the Westchester Buddhist Center. Are they the same? They might be. What was the qu the question? The four noble truths. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Got to know the four noble truths. So that's the quiz in in that circumstance. Here's a different quiz. Are external space and the internal mind the same or different? That's a hard one. If they're the same... How does make the space go through our head to the back of our head? Ah, that's what a coincidence, yeah. <laughs> I think the mind is internal. Is that why you did that? Because <laughs> we were going to... You know, honestly, I didn't remember that this was in there. And I just came up with it. I'm sorry. What is Cynthia. the mind internal to? Ooh, another tough question. So many questions. So little beer. I thought it was uh, not in located in space, wasn't it? Oh, you guys are tough. Good thing he's he doesn't have to deal with you guys. If they're the same, the essential nature of the mind must be space. If they're different, you would have to agree that space in a dream, space in the daytime, and space after this life are not the same, but different. Ooh. That's a leap. If the earlier space ceases and later types of space arise one after the other, each space would be subject to transformation, creation, and destruction. In that case, determine the causes and conditions from which they arise if space actually appears in the daytime due to the sun rising in the morning. Doesn't the sun cause it to appear in a dream and after this life? Or is the clear light of your own is it the clear light of your own mind? Don't just give this lip service. Instead, penetrate it with certainty. So this is your homework for next week, is to contemplate these questions. It's similar to other questions that uh, I've posed over time, like um, what's bigger? Is the past or the future bigger? And like, uh, what was another one? How far is it uh, from you to the universe on your left is that are you closer to the end of the universe on your left than you are on your right or vice versa you know like if you needed to go to the end of the universe which way should you go which avenue should you take recall that the teacher the lake born vajra padmasambhava samanta bhajra so He's affiliating those, those those individuals or those names as being one being. Uh, Lake-born Vajra in Tibetan is Soki Dorje, 
is another uh, epithet for Samatabhadra, another uh, manifestation of Sama, uh, sorry, of Padmasambhava. He had eight famous ones and some lesser famous ones, number of different manifestations, and the Lakebourne Vajra is one of them. So the teacher is addressing the Bodhisattva who said that when he looks within, what he sees has the quality of being unceasing. So we skipped that section, but uh, apparently this Bodhisattva says that when you look internally, you see uh, that it has the quality of being unceasing. When we look at our mind, it seems to just go on endlessly, right? Also bear in mind the overall context in this point. Show us the path to liberation, the path which we may, with which we may achieve the state of perfect, fully perfected Buddha Samadhi in one lifetime with one body. And the teaching being given takes the mind as the path is preliminary for ascertaining the ultimate nature of phenomena, emptiness, which is then taken as the path leading to the realization of Buddha nature. If you're going to take the mind as a path, you must get a good sense of what it is. What is the so-called mind? Does it have shape, color, and, and size? Determine the dimensions of your so-called mind, then determine and recognize its essential nature. What is it about your mind that makes it your mind rather than someone else's mind? If I say, make your Hawaiian shirt your path, you must know how to recognize that Hawaiian shirt and everything else. It's as prosaic as that. There are certain defining characteristics of a Hawaiian shirt by which you can identify it from other things. If you know the defining characteristics, you go right through your wardrobe and pick it out and teach it on the mind. The word space comes up rather frequently upon examination. You may see boundless space, empty space, luminous space, or black space deep space. Are external space and the internal mind the same or different? This is the Buddha once again interrogating great boundless emptiness. Let's identify external space experientially. You can see it, can't you? Look over yonder. Can you see the space between yourself and another person? If you look out a window at mountains in the distance, you can see the space between yourself and the mountain over there. Not only can you see the mountains way over yonder, but you can see the space if you look over yonder. It's a famous song. Everyone can. That's what we call space. That emptiness between you and me or you and the mountains. Moreover, that space is limpid and clear. We're more likely to attend to objects we view than the space around them because we have those habits and imprints. Some of them are from our previous lives, but others are from our body, the genes we've inherited, along with their, the behavioral examples they've given us. So we have two tracks operating here, that of evolution and that of an individual substrate consciousness merging together into what we call a human life, known in uh, science world as nature and nurture, I believe. From the evolutionary track, we, we are well prepared uh, to, to be able to ascertain, identify, and engage specifically with things that are moving. This has helped us survive. We definitely prefer to look at uh, the, the objects instead of the space. We don't really look at the differences between the space and different areas, do we? Unless you're an artist, some artists look at the different, uh, the shade that space takes on in different scenes and in scenery. And you can see this in, in the work of certain artists like Leonardo da Vinci, where he picked up on the color of space in different scenes. And um, 
Also, uh, supposedly Don Juan taught to Carlos Castaneda an exercise of looking at the space between the leaves and the trees as a practice that he should do. Anyway, uh, let's see. This uh, helps us survive, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Skipping to the next paragraph on page 90, we also operate from a variety of perspectives or influences, spiritual, psychological, etc. In the words of William James, what we attend to is reality. For the reasons I've mentioned, most of the time we're attending to objects. So they are reality. So if space is to become real for you, you have to attend to it. It is not something that we're naturally wired to do from a biological perspective. Nevertheless, we can do it. We can develop the habit. Become more and more familiar with attending to space and doing so space will become more real for us. But an interesting idea is to, to as a support for our practice, for merging minds with space, which I, I hear is, is a popular phrase and, and technique and instruction in your traditions, those of you who are here, in your, I think... You've heard that phrase, merging mind with space. So in order to merge your mind with space, it helps if you pay attention to space. Now we have this fascinating question, are external space and the internal mind the same or different? So if our teacher said to merge mind with space, would he have said that if they were the same or, or would he have said that if they were different? Could you merge them if they were different? Could you merge mind with space if they were different? But if they were the same, why would you need to merge them? Was he giving us a trick? Was that sort of a trick instruction? Okay, when speaking of the internal mind, the Bhagavan is not saying that the mind is really inside. He's referring us to the way we think of an outside world versus the way world we experience when we close our eyes and look inside. We have the sense that the mind is somehow within rather than existing in an external space. Now, are they the same or different? If they're the same, the essential nature of the mind must be space. That's one possibility. On the other hand, if they're different, you would have to agree that space in a dream, space in the daytime, and space after this life, for example, in the after-death Bardo state, are not the same but different. How does he jump to that conclusion? Because the minds are different, I guess. If the earlier space ceases as you go from one of these transitional phases to another, from the transitional phase of daytime experience, that of dream to bardo, then in each case a different space arises. If you fall asleep, your physical senses retract, and passing through deep sleep, you emerge into another space, dreaming. And the you know, so you wake in a dream, and there's the dream space. And when we dream, there's a certain space within which the players in the dream operate. And in a dream, we say everything that you dream is in your mind. And so there we would easily say, well, the space and your mind are not different. In the previous space, if the previous space before falling asleep ceases, does it simply vanish? Is it extinguished? When we fall asleep, does space disappear? Does the external world disappear? If at one moment you're observing the space around you and then later your senses withdraw into sleep, does the previous space become non-existent and an entirely new space arise? 
that of dreams. If so, each space would be subject to transformation, etc. Okay, it's sort of exhausting. In Buddhism, when you see cause and condition, causes refers to substantial causes. I, you know, like the big ones, and conditions refers to cooperative or supporting conditions. Any fruit, any consequence arises in dependence upon at least one substantial cause and at least one cooperative condition. That's a necessity in the system. Consider the hypothesis that the space of a dream arises at the outset of the dream and is then destroyed when the dream comes to an end. What happens to the space in our dreams after we stop dreaming? While it is present as it, or as it arises, that space is a conditioned phenomena arising in dependence upon causes and conditions. What is substantial cause for space in a dream? What actually transforms into the space of the dream? But what is the space of the dream condition? So on and so forth. So it's sort of exhausting analysis of space, getting us to really struggle with this idea of space. Okay. Advancing. It's treating space like a thing. Yeah, it sure is. Moving on to the next question, if the sun is an external source of illumination out, out there in space, is necessary as a cooperative condition to illuminate ordinary space in order to see ordinary space so that it actually manifests, then shouldn't there also be an external source in a dream that illuminates its space as a cooperative condition, a similar source in the after-death part of So we're in the space of a dream, and what is illuminating that space in the dream? Next time you dream, look to see if there's a sun that's illuminating the dream. Or maybe it's nighttime and there is no sun. Did you did you guys see the uh, eclipse, the lunar eclipse? Tried to, but it was too overcast. Oh, I saw it just like Chris. It was awesome. Oh. It was so cool. No. I understand now why you have yourself muted. <laughs> so we can't hear a thing you're saying. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, let's see. Then there shouldn't... Um, what does physics tell us about the light supposedly emanating from the sun? We can view light as either electromagnetic waves or as little particles. Looking at light as particles or photons, the nuclear activity of the sun emits an enormous quantity of them at various frequencies in all directions. <laughs> physics say that... that uh, these wave or particle light emissions from the sun are not bright. They have no color. By themselves, they don't look like anything. They're not self-illuminating. The sun in and of itself is not yellow, nor are the photons being distributed by it yellow. Nor is the sun intrinsically bright, nor are the photons bright, nor are the electromagnetic waves distributed by the sun bright. So where's all this light we see coming from? Sentient beings possess eyes and all of the visual hardware connecting the retina to the visual cortex. When those indivisible photons strike the retina, they trigger a complex sequence of electrochemical events. Though the process is poorly understood by science, and the end result is the perception of light and the yellow color of the sun. 
So we could say that the photons coming into our eyes in the sequence of electrochemical events from the retina back to the visual cortex are all cooperative conditions for the experience of light. Nothing in the head is bright, not the retina or the optic nerve or the cortex when all these electrochemical events are, uh, occur, stimulated by photons of specific frequencies, each or various frequencies, each specific to a, a particular color act as cooperative conditions, then they influence the flow of visual perception by activating different um, parts of our visual media. Thus, visual perception arises. But from what? What is the substantial cause of visual perception? It is the preceding continuum of visual is it, the, it is the preceding continuum of visual perception. Or if you just woke up, it emerges from the substrate consciousness. A stream of mental awareness, a substantial cause, transforms into visual perception, which is then conditioned by the electrochemical events in the brain, and which in turn are influenced by photons coming in from the outside environment. So we can now arrive at a very interesting conclusion. In order to appear, light and color require consciousness. This has, in fact, been known by science for centuries, back to the time of Descartes, and even a lot earlier. Descartes, Galilei, and many other pioneers drew a distinction between secondary attributes such as light and sound that arise only relative to sensory perception and primary attributes such as location and mass that exist independently of sensory perception. Color and light, being secondary, don't exist without consciousness. So consciousness is actually the source of illumination, making all appearances to the senses manifest. Ooh, that was a sneaky switch around, wasn't that? Did you see that coming? Did you see him leading to that? I didn't. That was a surprise he got. Okay, the photon is in all the electrochemical events in the brain are merely cooperative conditions allowing consciousness to illuminate in specific ways. So when we gaze at the sun, what we're seeing, metaphorically speaking, is the light of consciousness. So doesn't this seem like it's sort of a half mind only, but other half, there's still stuff out there? Yeah, there's uh, there's primary attributes that are still out there. Mass, what was it? Mass and something or other. Location and mass, time and, and space, time and, I don't know. Yeah, half, half agists. Is that what they're called? I, I, I half, don't have photonists. I think it needs a new name because it's it's not within the mind only. It's sort of. I don't. I don't know if you, there are any new names. I don't think there's anything new under the sun, isn't there? Ah, that was a bad pun. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, were there no consciousness, the sun would be invisible. Wow. It would not be light, it would not be bright, and certainly wouldn't be yellow. There's something about the particular types of, types of cooperative conditions coming from the sun that enable the light of consciousness to blaze so brilliantly. <clears throat> Insects and animals may think the sun is a different color. The source of illumination of the sun is the observing mind, and it's the same for everything else that emits light, candles, lamps, and other sources. They're simply expressions of the radiance of awareness, which is interesting, right? Going back to Cynthia's point of like, you know, so consciousness, does consciousness have its own illumination when there are no candles or lights or sun? In other words, can you see in the dark? 
And in the Buddhist tradition, supposedly you can. Enlightened people can see in the dark. They don't need any light. There's something, something I'm struggling with with this, though, is that the sun does more than just emit light. And I, yeah. you know, I mean, photosynthesis being, you know, a major part of its role on Earth. And obviously it emits heat. Which is also yeah. So I'm a little uh, not totally convinced by this, the specifics of this argument, even though I get the gist of what he's saying. Okay, that's good. It's good to be skepticalistic. <laughs> even even bigger than that, it, it provides gravity. Ooh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it's a busy little thing. That's um, so um returning to our uh so uh, I think he's talking about the uh the visual experience of the sun and he would there's no argument about the other activity that the sun um, goes about doing in its busy day from morning to sun, to, uh, to uh, evening. The sun generates gravity and it uh, generates warmth. For all I know, it might even do that at night. So return our question, could it be that there is a single source that illuminates space, be it in the waking state, in the dream state, or in the after state, namely the innate luminosity of your own awareness? Now, he's not talking about the warmth or the photosynthesis or the gravity. He's not saying that there's that there's a single source for that, uh, but just, just visual experience. The clear light of your own mind. Don't give this lip service, says the Buddha, and don't believe what I've just suggested on my authority. Instead, penetrate it with certainly pursue it, pursue it experientially, etc. What when the, what is illuminated in the world and what gives rise to space? What gives rise to space is different than the illuminating quality. Great balance emptiness says, Oh teacher, the essential nature of my mind is definitely space. That was quick. You chose a instead of B, during the daytime, earth, water, fire, air are uh, displayed in the domain of space, grasped by the conceptual mind and dream as well. The ground of mind appears as space and the entire world are displayed as they were before, after this life too. The nature of mind appears as space and so forth. So the Bodhisattva is speaking not of the mind's ultimate nature, but its relative nature on page 94, by means of which you can identify mind versus that which is not mind. The objects of the mind are displayed in the domain of space, grasped by the conceptual mind. All grasping is not necessarily reification. It's an interesting point. There's two types of grasping. All the grasping of, uh, all the gradations rather of grasping boil down to two main categories. Grasping with standard, where standard conceptual designations are used for communication, but where no reification is implied. And grasping where reification does take place. The grasping to which the Bodhisattva refers is the first category. So objects of mind are displayed, they reveal themselves in our grasp, that is, they are identified as such, this form and so forth, the act of designating is performed by the conceptual mind, likewise in dreams. 
and in the after death state same thing happens keep in mind that the world of the after death bardo overlaps with our world there are ghosts floating around looking at their dead bodies or seeing their grieving relatives. That's why from the Tibetan tradition for up to seven weeks after a person has died, if you think of that person, it's believed that he or she may perceive those thoughts. Ghosts are clairvoyant. So when you think of them, uh, do so with benevolent thoughts. <laughs> Be careful what you think about dead people after they're gone. <laughs> and help them on their way. Whenever grasping occurs, chances are, occur, chances are out of sheer habit, that one is continually diluted. Why? By first reifying and then following our natural habit patterns, manifestations of craving, aversion, and all the mental inflictions and so resulting in diluted behavior. Therefore, space, self, and others in all sense objects are of one taste there certainly not separate. Moreover, it is the luminosity of space itself and nothing else that makes appearances manifest. The essential nature of the mind and the ground and its ground in space is space itself. Various appearances occur in the realm of the mental cognition. Limpid, clear, forever present consciousness. This, the display of these appearances like the reflections in a mirror or the images of planets and stairs. Stars. <laughs> stairs. Stars in daytime. Uh, not daytime, sorry. In a pool of limpid water, clear water. Although on one level, self and other and so forth are different, they're not fundamentally radically separate. And where is this all this going? Suppo next paragraph. Suppose you were to observe the space above a nearby object. What's there? Empty space, right? Then imagine a round red apple in that space. Where did this image come from? You didn't pull it up out of a shopping bag. It emerged from the empty space. Your mind is simply an expression of the luminosity that was already there when we visualize phenomena in space. The luminous empty space above the object took on the contours of an apple. It was the luminosity of that space that allowed for the appearance of an apple. We keep thinking that our, our experience of the space above an object and the space above an object are different. He's already asserted that they're not. It's a very different scenario. What is the ground of your psyche? Isn't that just that the notion of a, the notion of there being space above an object is all a concept? Um, I I think it's a little more than that. I think it's the next leap. Uh, what is the ground of your psyche? It's the substrate consciousness, the alivijana, because the outer object is projected by your substrate consciousness. And so the sun with its gravitational force and its warmth and its photosynthetic capabilities are all projections of our Aliyah Vijnana. And we all project the same sun. So when Very we're similar. When we're doing generation practice, that's coming from the substrate? Yes, totally. Totally, yes. And it's it's giving you uh forms that somebody else has used in their substrate as a way of working through their substrate. 
And it's sort of like a, a magical uh, token that like, oh, it worked for one person and they pass it on to other people. And it has that sort of um, uh, blessing, that sort of uh, additional power. Because uh, I think you said earlier, we all believe it, and most of us believe in magic, right? So there's a reason that most of us believe in magic. Yeah, because so, most of us can't song. see how we got here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's part of it. Yeah, that's a big part of it. It's also a song about it, right? Okay, so uh, the ground of our psyche is the substrate. So when he speaks of space being the ground of the essential nature of the mind, he's not referring to the ultimate ground. He's referring, he's venturing into the domain of consciousness accessed by shamatha, not the ultimate ground awareness accessed by dzogchen. We can be sure he's not speaking of Rigpa because he speaks of the dichotomy between external space and the internal mind. The Bodhisattva describes the realm of mental cognition as limpid, clear, forever present. The mind has its own realm, its own space, and appearances occur in that space during daytime, etc. He compares those appearances to the reflections in the mirror or the images of um, planets and stars in a pool. Those two metaphors will recur many times. So, um, those are the images that all phenomena are like the reflections in a mirror, mirror, or the images of planets and stars reflected in a pool of water. You can see them, but they're not there. We tend to think that the planets are really there, but they're just like their reflections their reflections and they're not there in the way that we think of them there these two metaphors will occur many times in the text traditionally there are 10 standard metaphors illustrating the illusory nature of phenomena in some instances all 10 of them are mentioned here it's using just two if you hold up a mirror and look at some scene reflected there the scene you're viewing appears to be somewhere off in the distance off in space as you know however in a mirror there's nothing over there that corresponds to what you're seeing and to where you're objectively focusing your attention. We typically look at a scene in a mirror camera lens or directly with our eyes and believe that the object of our attention exists from its own side, but that object is empty of inherent existence concerning the images of the planets and so forth very far away. For all practical purposes, there's no difference between staring at the night sky and looking into a reflection pool at your feet. In either case, so there's the external space and the internal space of the mind. And that's like the uh, stars in the sky is the external space and the reflections in the pool of water is like the internal mind. Um, in, either, in either case, when you view reflections of or look directly at planets and stars, you're effectively gazing into infinity. Mirror, camera, eyes cannot distinguish this distance from infinity. So for all practical purposes, you are now gazing at infinity, looking through planet Earth to the stars, and that's exactly objectively where the image is. And the image is completely empty of any true planets or stars. Sort of a leap here, huh? I'm glad I've got your, your suspicions up. It's good to be very skeptical. Because ideally that 
that makes you want to uh, pursue it and really like explore it and understand it as opposed to thinking oh i got that so then we go back to uh dreaming yourself awake and the excerpt that was in the source book and circulated separately and uh in this he presents a wonderful scheme of uh, shamanic practice through the uh, various stages which number 10 of course very conveniently and uh, affiliates them lines them up with the three types of shamatha in terms of the uh, type of object there's shamatha on a, a, a sort of a concrete object and he uses the breath as do we and there's shamatha upon the nature of mind and there's shamatha on uh, um, or what he says settling the mind in its natural state is the second type of shamatha and then there's shamatha without a sign that's called awareness of awareness so if you're in the source book it's page 277 otherwise there's a separate pdf i believe it's called shamatha meditation from dreaming yourself awake He first notes how rare this is uh, in the West. Um, for one, shamatha has be, been de-emphasized because we've uh, been exposed to all, all sorts of higher teachings. And second, unless one is ordinary, one already already has an extremely relaxed and balanced mind, full achievement of shamatha may require months or even years of concentrated solitary retreat practice at one time he hypothesizes in calm pastoral societies such as tibet theoretically well-balanced minds were more common making the achievement of shamatha possible in a shorter time span there wasn't much to do back in those days in the hills of tibet tending the yaks and so forth uh, they didn't have cell phones as they do now everybody in the whole entire world has cell phones including yak herders <laughs> they have an app they actually have an app for yak herding <laughs> there's our chance for millions a yak herding app create your own app <laughs> Okay, three sequential practices on the path. The next page of PDF or book. I have found these three practices to be most effective for modern people, defined as people who live after the uh, pre-modern society, whatever the hell the date of that would be. Anyway, engaged in shamatha training. First is mindfulness of breathing. Develop one's attention by observing inhalation exhalations, passively witnessing the tactile sensations throughout the body associated with breathing. The experience of the breath provides an excellent grounding, allowing physical and mental relaxation to become the basis of the practice from the very beginning. Relaxation. For those committed to the full shamatha training described above, <coughs> I recommend that mindfulness of breathing be practiced in stages one through four 
of the ten stages of shamatha. So he maps out this scheme affiliating with different types of shamatha, with different stages of uh, shamatha, and my assertion is that one naturally progresses through them, even if one starts with the breath. One naturally progresses to settling the mind in its natural state at a certain point, and from there to awareness of awareness. Now, I don't have any proof of that, having uh, not achieved anything more than the first stage of shamatha at, at most, but it's just a hunch that I have. As I viewed, looked at my hunch. Uh, diving in a little bit to the uh, third one. From stage eight onward, one practices shamatha without a sign, also called awareness of awareness. Previously, we've been focused focusing on an object that is a sign. It's the last paragraph on this page, 278. Here attention is placed on awareness itself, whereas the breath and mental phenomena are objects identify within a conceptual framework. Awareness focused on an object other than itself. Here awareness simply rests within itself, luminous and cognizant. This third type is helpful for dream practice and other types of practice and which we'll introduce later in the book of uh, said book. The instructions given in this chapter follow diligently will allow the meditator to accomplish the first of the three stages. So I pasted together the instructions that he intersperses through the book of these three stages into one document. If one is inspired to go further, practice in long solitary retreats is usually necessary. He keeps saying that which usually means that he means it, but you never know. He could just be saying it. For detailed explanation, for detailed explanation of shamatha, see my book. See my book. There's a book about it. Shamatha and the breath, stage one, relaxing. Skipping the first few sentences, he says, we'll begin this in future sessions by settling the body in its natural state and cultivating a quiet quality of quiet, mindful presence will allow the awareness, or awareness rather, to permeate the field of tactile sensations, sensations arising on both the interior and the periphery of the body. If you've never tried this, I urge you to try this. It's not, you know, the, the strict technique that we received, at least in the world of Trungpa Rinpoche. Many of you may have received other uh, techniques, but uh, I urge you to try this one. And uh, depending on where you are in your practice, you can see your uh, session going through different phases, or maybe you go to uh, a day-long practice and you can sort of go through different phases of these three, or a retreat for a week. I thought they were really good. Just yeah, that's yeah, very cool. Once you found a comfortable posture, so find a comfortable posture. He suggests um, settling and then taking three slow, deep, luxurious breaths. <laughs> sort of like going to the spa, right? You're going to the breathing spa. Breathing through the nostrils, down into the belly. Other people say to breathe through the nostrils and the mouth. Uh, skipping to the next paragraph. Next, settle your respiration, its natural rhythm. 
knowing how easy it is to influence the breath with your preferences. So we've encountered this before where it's very hard to just let yourself breathe naturally at first. Or many people find that they're manipulating constantly, like trying, you know, sort of uh, unintentionally controlling their breath, trying to slow it or whatever. So just let it be to the best of your ability, withdraw your control and allow respiration to flow of its own accord. When we begin, we discover the waterfall stage. Cultivate a positive attitude, one of patience when you encounter distraction. Rather than reacting by trying to clamp down, force the mind to be still. During meditation, relax and let go of the pent-up turbulent energy of the body-mind and surf the mind. Surf that wave of thoughts, agitation. Take advantage of each exhalation. A natural moment to relax and let go. Very similar to our tradition. With every exhalation, feel a progressive, progressive sense of melting in the body, a softening, loosening of the body with each exhalation. As soon as you know that any involuntary thought or image has arisen, just release it without a second thought. <laughs> That's a funny thing to say. And immediately upon a release, let your awareness descend quietly once again into the field of the body, simply taking note of whatever tactile sensations arise within this field, especially attending to those sensations correlated to the breath. So when you attend to the tactile sensations in the body, he's suggesting you start with the, the place in the body where the uh, body moves in relation to the breath, because you can then feel those more easily. Another way to do this is to feel the uh, air on your skin. And it's easiest to do this with the skin that you might have exposed to the air and not covered in clothing, obviously. And, and once you connect in one uh, through either of those ways to the sense of tactile touch in the body, sensation in the body, you'll sense, you'll connect to, there's this light vibratory uh, feeling of, which is the sense of touch that pervades our body externally and to some extent internally. And from that basis, you can then experience the tactile sensation throughout the entire surface of the body if you attend closely to it. And you will eventually find that there's a soft vibratory energy that covers the entire surface of the body. That is the tactile sensation. And it creates a very soothing and uh, a continuous object for helping one relax and release thoughts. Uh, when you become, when you discover you become caught up in thoughts that your mind's been carried away rather than being frustrated and judge yourself, just relax more deeply. He recommends uh, keeping your meditation sessions to 24 minutes. And if you ever do retreat, solitary retreat on your own, where there's no timekeeper telling you when to start and finish, I highly recommend these 24-minute sessions. Do multiple 24-minute sessions and try uh, not to take too long a break between at least two or three of them for a sort of longer you know, period of uh, like either between lunch and uh, breakfast and lunch or lunch and dinner or 
dinner in bed. And just repeat, just like do us 24 minutes, walk around, go to the bathroom, maybe read a little bit, but not more than like 15, 20 minutes, do another 24 minute session and just do a few of them. It's very helpful. Gives a nice outline of the practice. Commentary on the next page. <clears throat> the usual mindfulness and introspection we've been through a million times. Don't need to repeat that. Um, he recommends this type of breathing for helping us go to bed at night. <laughs> In case that's a problem for you. And he he mentions briefly without really clarifying that uh, if you're going to meditate uh, lying down, ideally you do it in a posture of uh, uh, savasana, whatever it's called, where you're on your back and your legs and arms are out flat as opposed to on your side. And he's assuming that people sleep on their side. So you don't want to meditate in the posture that you sleep in. Keep those two separate. Now, if you happen to sleep on your back, that creates a little bit of a problem. But don't let that keep you up at night. On the next page, um, <clears throat> having settled into a comfortable posture, begin by settling the body in its natural state and be with three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. Having done that, round off by taking three slow, deep breaths, settle your breathing in its natural rhythm, and then as before, you're aware, let your awareness permeate the entire field of tactile sensations. Skipping to the next paragraph, in the first phase of mindfulness of breathing, the primary emphasis is on allowing a sense of ease, comfort, and relaxation to arise in the body and mind. Skim to the next paragraph, a sense of ease and relaxation is indispensable for cultivating intentional skills and, and by the way, dream practice. But by itself, it's not enough. We also need to introduce the element of stability, the voluntary continuity of attention. So let's step up this practice now by narrowing the focus of attention. And this is very much the way it's done traditionally in all the traditional texts that describe meditation, is that to uh, sharpen your attention, deepen your attention, you... Uh, make the focal point of your attention smaller and smaller or subtler and subtler. So if, if the focal point of your attention was the, se the sensation of touch throughout your body, realize uh, that there's like what you might call a coarse sense of touch or vibration and a subtler one and a progressively subtler one until you can feel the very, very subtle sensation within the body. When it's uh, the breath, you literally do it by location, the abdomen, and then you'll see there's a shift to the, the upper lip, which is proverbially where the breath strikes as it comes out of your nostrils, unless your nostrils have been moved in some way to an odd location on your face. Or in, normally in Trungpa Rinpoche's tr tradition, there's a, there's a tendency to think that the nostrils point straight out, and we, we go out with the breath, <laughs> as if as if our nostrils just are open. Anyway, enough of that. Um, so we've been through this particular uh, step a number of times. Let's let's go further. Uh, actually, on uh, 
It's sourcebook page 283. And let's see, that would be PDF page 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. PDF page 7. First par full paragraph, and now to help stem the flow of obsessive thinking. He must be talking about other people than us, of being compulsively carried away by thoughts. You may find it helpful, at least occasionally, to count the breaths, to substitute many rambling thoughts for a few regular thoughts, the thoughts of counting. What is that? Introducing this technique is similar to doing what in Trump Rinpoche's tradition? Anyone? Labeling thoughts? Labeling thoughts. And what do we label them? Thinking. Thank you. <laughs> Just the same label for any type, possible type of object that engages your mind. Right? And so that helps reduce the obsessive thinking about other things. So you think like, that that's equivalent to the I do. I do. Yeah. I think it counts as counting. <laughs> it's a sim very simple form of counting. It's like one, one, one. <laughs> well, it, it certainly levels of, I, I don't know, I see them as slightly different because it seems like counting is something that sort of helps people hold to um, the, the object, to the breathing. Whereas I thought that the labeling was more of a kind of a leveling or flattening of or evening out of like the equality of all the thoughts, not necessarily just trying to keep you on the breath. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it does have that additional sort of, um, yeah, ontological effect. <laughs> all thoughts are the same. That's right whatever it is. Uh, let's see. Keep the muscles of the face further in that paragraph. Keep the, f the muscles of the face relaxed. So don't, don't try not to grimace too much as you meditate. <laughs> uh, the eyes soft. No hard eyes. The forehead spacious. <laughs> That's funny. How do you make the forehead space? See that you're not directing your eyes to the tip of your nose. Why would he say that? Why would you be directing your eyes to the tip of your nose? Is he implying that you're looking at the space right in front of your face and may therefore find it easier to look at your, the tip of your nose than the space? Hmm. Interesting. But don't focus on the tip of your nose. That'll give you make you cross-eyed, right? And you'll be cross-eyed permanently. <laughs> like in uh, the movie. What's that movie? The Jerk. Remember The Jerk? And he d designs this thing so that the glasses don't fall down and then the guy ends up cross. Anyway, moving on. Gives an outline of the practice. So, uh, two more pages, which I guess would be page nine, if, I'm, if I did that right. Shamatha settling the mind in its oh natural state. 
In this practice, one's attention is placed neither on tactile sensations nor in the breath, but on the so-called phenomena of the mind itself. I'm hoping that this idea of of uh, settling the mind as natural states and placing natural state and placing the mind on the mind itself is sort of elusive to us. And, and you're wondering sort of like, what does that mean, placing the mind on the mind itself, on its, its natural state? It means your object of attention will be the space of the mind. That implies there might be some space in your mind at this point when you reach this point, or that in order to reach this point, you need to discover space in your mind. In other words, you need to be able to identify the space between thoughts or have less thoughts or to understand that thoughts don't obscure the space of the mind. Those are sort of little hints on how to identify the mind as an object. That means that your object of attention will be the space of the mind, whatever thoughts, emotions, images, and other kinds of mental phenomena arise in that domain of experience. So um, the emphasis on the space of the mind that gets uh, identified by the content, the content delineates the space just as the looking at the space between the leaves, the leaves outline the space. <clears throat> so we're using the contents of mind to help us identify what's around the content. The goal is to simply observe this passing parade without becoming involved, without cultivating, investigating, being attracted to, encouraging, etc. any mental phenomena. Well, real quick, doesn't labeling do that too? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think labeling, um, it, you're paying attention to the content. And here you shift well, to the container. My experience when I was labeling was that I wasn't where I was supposed to be. <laughs> well, that's, an, that's an interesting response to it. I, 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 I can see where you're affiliating the two so, in so, that case. So it was an orienting thing. Um, yeah, I think that I think what you're saying is 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 very similar. I don't know that other others of us uh, interpreted labeling in that way. But that that's how I used it. I was that's like, great. oh, to come back, you know. Well, coming back identifies there's an away. There's something that goes away and something that comes back. And so you're you're then assuming that there's a location to the whole thing, right? The location being my attention. Uh, I disagree. I think you're saying that your attention came back. Yeah, to so attention. Your attention came back to attention. Yeah, <laughs> you're to, like attention when you stand well, not, in attention. Not, not, not that kind of attention, but it's just that awareness is now aware that it's aware, and before awareness is only aware of what the content of the thought. Oh, so instead of I, I misunderstood the, your use of the term "come back," um, 
for many people, there's a feeling of physically coming back from being dragged away. But you, you meant awareness was absent and then it reappeared. Right. So the question is awareness of what? Well, the, the, the intention of, of practice. The awareness of the attention well, to practice. The, the awareness of the practice itself. I mean, the whole thing is kind of like, it's like graph paper in a sense, you know, and, and, and we, we're, we're, we're moving from, from point to point. And if we get, and what, and we're sort of the, the space in between, that's mind. And whatever shows up in there, either we're cognizant of it and, or we get sucked into it. And if you get sucked into it, you've lost awareness and you need to come back. But if you don't get sucked into it, it's just a play of the mind. Isn't this also a little bit, Derek, what they, when they use the term recollection, you know, like recollecting the object, you, you know, if, if you lose it, you know, if, if your aim is to work with an object, even if the object is mind, but you just completely lose the sense of that, your mind is just sort of gone. Uh, has lost the sense of having an object. Even I mean, I guess this is it's trickier when you have the object of mind than when you have an object like breath, certainly. Yeah, I think it's a lot trickier when the object is the mind. Definitely, no doubt. You because because uh, like what you're saying, Rob, is that the points I um give you a sense of whether you're back or not. And the next step is to shift to the space. So for most of us, I, I don't think the labeling does that. I think the labeling identifies the points. But if it does that for you, that's tremendous. Well, I'm, I'm not really labeling very much anymore. That's not really my practice. But I was just saying when I was <laughs> doing it, that's how it, it felt. You know, it was... Good. Good. Ideally, when we label thoughts, we see what's around the thoughts, which is the mind. Ideally, right. Exactly. But most of us, most of us don't. We label the thoughts, and then we come back to the object, which is the breath. It's like Turgum Trumpa's story, where he drew uh, had a big piece of white paper, and he drew a little tiny bird, and he goes, "What did I just draw a picture of?" And everybody said, "A bird." And he goes, "No." The sky. Right, which is just like the practice of looking at the space between the leaves. Exactly. Yep. Oh, let's see, the next paragraph. Using this practice as a complement to lucid dreaming. No, let's skip that. <laughs> Is anybody here really good at lucid dreaming? Have lucid dreams all the time? Uh, meditation session, so he gives instruction for settling the mind in its natural state. Begin by settling the body in natural state and the respiration in its natural rhythm as described in the first shamatha session in chapter one. Uh, it goes through the posture and the breaths and then he does a scan. He recommends a scan your body from crown to the tips of your toes. And uh, without visualizing it, which is interesting, usually we visualize our body 
we end up usually visualizing our body when we scan it, but see if you can experience it in terms of sensation. And rest for a moment in the global experience of your body as a big hole in space. <laughs> I think he meant the other type of hole, like a, a unitary field of tactile, tactile sensations. And then it goes through the progress of focusing in on the abdomen, etc. And then he does the counting. And now open your eyes. Oh! <laughs> so he's had his eyes closed this whole time, interestingly enough. And so, so he's very much doing the Theravada thing. And, you know, his first teacher was... Uh, uh, maybe his first teacher, but one of his early teachers was a uh, Theravadan in Sri Lanka. He met up with in uh, Sri Lanka. Ananda Maitreya Balangodaniya or something, some weird name. And uh, open your eyes and let them remain at least partially open with your gaze race, uh, resting vacantly in the space in front of you and direct your attention to the space of the mind and whatever arises within that space. At first you might generate a mental event in order to facilitate that. Think of something. A thought or an image like that of a piece of fruit or the face of a relative. Generate that image, focus single-pointedly upon that image, allow it to fade. Then keep your attention right where it was. This is such a great technique, right? You think of like a generative piece of fruit or your mom or someone else, and you see them in your so-called mind's eye, and then you let it dissolve. And can you identify the space where it was and what is there now? And that's how he says, using that technique, it gives you an inclination of how to rest the mind on the mind. <laughs> That's great. Generate the image, focus single pointedly upon it, allow it to fade, keep your attention right where it was, ready to detect the next image, thought, or blah, blah, blah. So then you see the next image arrive into being. This practice is very simple. On the next page, you do your best to maintain an unwavering flow of mindfulness directed to the space of the mind attending to whatever arises therein without reactivity, judgment, distraction, or grasping. You may experience intervals in which you're unable to detect any thought image or other mental event. Doing this practice every once in a while produces this sort of gap experience where it's like you don't know whether you're coming or going or, or what's going on. Yet you still have an object of meditation during those intervals between thoughts you simply attend to with discerning mindfulness, the vacuity of the space of the mind. So even when that occurs, you just attend to the vacuity. He loves that word, vacuity. I hate that word, vacuity. <laughs> Constantly reminds me of a vacuum cleaner. I don't know. But um, you're attending both to the stage and to the players on the stage. So when there are no players, attend to the stage. Another helpful analogy for helping us identify the mind as the object upon which we rest our mind in the phase of resting the mind in the mind. When you notice you become distracted, just step back gently into the mindful and passive observation of the mental flow. The term step back is very helpful. 
identifying the space of the mind has this feeling of stepping back or receding from the content of the mind. You, you identify the content of mind, and then you like collapse backwards, or you uh, lie backward into the container, which is the space of the mind. And there's always there's this sense that the mind, the objects are in front of us, and that the space is behind us. So start with that, and then realize that the space is everywhere. Obviously. Do the 24-minute thing he's into. There's 60 24 minutes in a day, as there are 24 60 minutes in a day. So oh, that's the origin of that sacred magical number. Lastly, shamatha on the awareness of awareness. Or shamatha without a sign. <laughs> what an odd phrase. Give me a sign. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, uh, one way to directly enter lucid dream and sleep is to close one's eyes during activities of normal lucid dreaming. So if you ever experience lucid dreaming, close your eyes. <laughs> See what happens. When you wake up in your dream, try to go to sleep. <laughs> Can you fall asleep in your dream? Can you dream in your dream? You know, I've always thought if you really had control of your mind, you should be able to fall asleep on the spot. That's right. Well, that's these yogis. They can. They're just like that. Right? I mean, that's... Yeah. that's Not only yogis. My dad was very good at that. He would just fall asleep. Boom. Well, like military... Almost, almost mid-sentence. Military people can do it because... You know, they need it. to. People who've been to combat can do it, but but like my dad could too. But I'm just, I'm just thinking that if you, I mean, if, if, you know, that if you if you really have control of your mind, you should be able to turn it off. Totally. Okay. On the next page, a session of awareness of awareness. A session. Beginners in previous sessions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Next paragraph. When you've attained a state that's relaxed and even release. Your attention to all objects, any and all mental and physical appearances, and sensual settle rather your awareness in the very state of being aware. Your awareness is not directed anywhere, neither inward nor outward, but rest naturally in its own nature. Whatever thoughts arise, release them immediately. You're allowing your awareness to settle naturally into its own nature as you maintain this relaxed, easy vigilance. <laughs> doesn't sound easy and relaxed, but it's, it's that type of vigilance. Simply release any phenomena that obscure the clarity of your awareness. What's left over is the sheer event of knowing. Meditate on the capacity of knowing that is in the center of your mind, so to speak. From time to time, check to see that you're not straining, so you're not holding. Uh, he says that because there's a tendency to shift into holding something, either physically or mentally, because we're not used to not holding completely. And that your breathing remains deeply relaxed and rests in this state of utter, 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 <laughs> utter simplicity. After one gatika, the 24 minutes, bring it to a close. Commentary in the bottom is uh, practice is utterly simple. The attention must be maintained in a very quiet and subtle manner, especially if your attention is to fall asleep loosely. He keeps combining it with the, the sleep yoga, which is the 
theme of the book. But um, once you've gained some mastery in the practice, the substrate consciousness is experienced directly in blue, imbued rather with the qualities of bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Awareness of awareness provides a shortcut. Uh-oh. Now that he said that, everybody's going to try to do this right off the bat, right? A shortcut? Okay. <laughs> I'm on it. To this experience, which is achieved more gradually over time through the practice of settling the mind, it's natural state. When I first started to meditate, just a couple of years ago, I did it by books. I hadn't met a teacher. And uh, first I read these Theravon-type books, and that was great. I did that very assiduously. And then I came across all this Tibetan stuff, and there was this series of books by Evans Wenz, one of which was called uh, the Tibetan Book of the Great Symbol, Mahamudra. And there it described these Mahamudra practices of, you know, just resting the mind and awareness. So I tried that for some time. Fortunately, I realized it was not getting anywhere, and I switched back to an object. Given the practice is so subtle, how can you be sure you're maintaining awareness of awareness? It's helpful for any kind of practice to know what the extremes are, so you can find the middle between them. For this one, if you try too hard, this gives rise to agitation. If you don't try hard enough, you fall into dullness, which is like any other of the stages. Once you recognize the two extremes, you want to do something in between, which means bouncing off them more and more lightly. If you're focusing on any object, thought, or whatever, that's one extreme on the agitation side. The other extreme, which is more elusive, is sitting there with a blank mind, not aware of anything. Vegetable. Um, you're not attending to any object, just vegetating. What is in between is a quality of freshness because you're located in the present moment and vividly aware and you're not attending to any object at all but aware that awareness is happening. It's wonderfully simple but subtle. It's like slipping into an old pair of shoes. <laughs> when you're in it, you really know you're there. You need to develop a confidence that you know when you are doing it correctly. This is how it is done. Now, I didn't give a whole lot of technique there, so I'll just add slightly a little indication which... Uh, the key part is where he says you're, f you're focusing on the faculty of knowing. So it's different than settling the mind in its natural state in which you're, you have that exercise of generating an object in the space of the mind and letting it dissolve and keeping the attention where that object was because that object appeared in your mind and it's the object uh, to some to uh, do uh, uh, dualistic sense obscured the mind. So once it's gone, then the mind remains. And there's a sense of looking at the mind. And in the third practice of awareness of awareness, you turn that looking back and you look at the looker. The substrate consciousness Dream Yoga uh, seeks to go beyond the psyche to primordial consciousness, when, which when fully actualized or realized are synonymous with the ultimate goal of Buddhism, enlightenment. Before one arrives there, you need a passport and a COVID test, and uh, you encounter a state of consciousness more subtle than the psyche, though not as transcendent 
as primordial consciousness, the second mental field, the substrate consciousness. So what is the second to? It's second to our normal everyday consciousness of scattered thoughts and so forth. So the second mental field is the substrate, all Ivishnana. It's different from the subconsciousness of Freud and the collective consciousness of Jung. It's prior to and more fundamental than the subconscious, uh, than the subconscious, a sub subconscious. So it's it's more sub than the subconsciousness of Freud and Jung. As such, it is considered to be the source of the entire psyche, including what we call the subconsciousness. Therefore, there is some overlap between the psyche and the subconscious substrate consciousness, although the latter presents a deeper and more detailed picture of what psychologists call unconsciousness. Right. So the uh, Aliya Vijnana includes the unconsciousness and the, the, the Western unconsciousness and subconsciousness. This is why lucid dreamers may benefit from the theory and practice of dream yoga, blah, blah. Although the substrate consciousness is unique to the individual distinguishing it from Jung's collective unconsciousness for Buddhism, it is the basis for subsequent reincarnations. It could be said that it is not the individual that reincarnates, but successive expressions or evolutions of an individual continuum of a substrate consciousness. This mental stream begins to become configured at conception. The pre-existing mental stream is reconfigured. It's, uh, uh, you, you have it uh, brought into the shop and it's made up with a new set of whatevers and is then modified by thinking about behavior and experiences throughout one's life. Roughly speaking, these experiences, whatever, are stored in the substrate as karmic imprints that condition the life of the individual in that lifetime as well as future. Wholesome, unwholesome, therefore the substrate consciousness is similar to a memory chip where previous inputs constantly modify the present and condition the future of the computer. Just the software and hardware constantly interact with and influence each other, so does the substrate and its emergent psyche causally inter interact with each other throughout the course of a lifetime. The relevance of the substrate for dream yoga. Let's see, I'll skip that part. <laughs> Primordial consciousness. Wow. Okay, maybe a few more minutes. I hope that's okay. Thorough explanation of the substrate consciousness together with psyche it subsumes, provides a launching pad for probing the deepest space of awareness so to go where no person has gone before. Primordial consciousness, which transcends all concepts, including those of subject and object, existence and non-existence, time and space. Timeless, unborn into the relative universe we conceive of as existence as the source of virtues such as compassion, creativity, and wisdom which emanate from it spontaneously. The full realization of primordial consciousness is the achievement of total freedom, enlightenment, the final victory. This is the ultimate aim of dream yoga and of all genuine Buddhist practice. Of course, the color of the primordial consciousness is purple. The substrate consciousness highly conditioned a repository of innate tendencies, karmic propensities, the basis of samsara. In contrast, primordial consciousness presents total freedom from such mental afflictions. Primordial consciousness or ultimate bodhicitta. Oh. 
he's implying these are the same thing. Ultimate bodhicitta and primordial consciousness. Interesting. It's non-dual from relative bodhicitta, the wish to achieve, but in order to benefit, bring all sentient beings to enlightenment, it's non-dual with the relative bodhicitta. In the traditional Mahayana practice of relative bodhicitta, one gradually develops great love and compassion for all sentient beings. This can be achieved through exercise that lead one to first see other sentient beings as equal in value to ones to ourselves, which is a big step <laughs> beyond our normally self-centered viewpoint. And finally, to view other sentient beings collectively as of greater value than ourselves. That's ridiculous. Our orientation becomes one of helping others to the greatest extent possible based on the recognition of their suffering and their potential happiness. Training is largely conceptual. Relative bodhicitta, however, through the realization of primordial consciousness, great compassion, relative bodhicitta, aspiration for perfect life for the sake of all beings arise spontaneously and merge non-dually. You don't need to look elsewhere outside of ultimate bodhicitta to find relative bodhicitta, which is why when we do Lojong, or sorry, Tonglen practice, we start with absolute bodhicitta. And ideally, there's not this sense that, oh, I'm leaving ultimate bodhicitta and emerging into the relative, but that they are non-dual. Within absolute ultimate bodhicitta is relative. <clears throat> breaking through to primordial consciousness and natural liberation, which is a text by Padmasambhava. He presents an advanced practice for recognizing pristine awareness in the dream state, utilizing the students who have fully accomplished shamatha and vipassana may be able to dwell in rikpa, whatever that is, or pristine awareness in the dream state of a person lacking these prerequisites may also attain a glimpse of primordial consciousness by allowing awareness to descend into the substrate using the methods presented in chapter 4. Closing one's eyes in a lucid dream, falling asleep, and practicing awareness of awareness. When you release the dream, but sustain your lucidity and your awareness dissolves from the psyche of the dream consciousness, and the substrate obviously adds an opportunity for directly realizing the substrate consciousness. But you may in that state practice Dzogchen in a lucid dreamless state. By releasing all grasping in the panoramic 360-degree 360 open awareness of awareness upon awareness, your awareness may break through the substrate consciousness and be realized as pristine awareness. <clears throat> so as you practice meditation, shamatha, whatever we call it, Vipassana. At some point, ponder the idea that there's a substrate consciousness. And where might that be? And what might that be? And what might breaking through that be? Just here and there, give that a thought. Um, the authentic practice of Dzogchen, however, entails much more than simply resting in choiceless awareness or open presence. Here, the usual complaint about the MVM, modern Vipassana movement. These practices are not even genuine shamatha. For shamatha always involves selective attention, not openness to all appearances. Moreover, if you're still attending to any appearances, your mind will never withdraw to the substrate consciousness. So you'll never achieve shamatha. Choiceless awareness and open presence are also not really Vipassana practice. For true Vipassana always involves some degree of inquiry which those practices lack. And finally, neither of those two practices by themselves constitute Dzogchen meditation for genuine Dzogchen involves a thorough immersion into the view, meditation, and way of life of Dzogchen. 
without coming to view reality from the perspective of pristine awareness. Open presence is nothing more than resting in one's ordinary dualistic mind. The classic sequence of practice in the Dzogchen tradition consists of settling the mind on the substrate, consciousness through the practice of shamatha, exploring the nature of mind through the practice of apashtana, finally penetrating through the conventional mind, namely the substrate consciousness, to pristine awareness through the practice of trekcha meditation, which is the first of the two main practices of Dzogchen you may have encountered or may Maybe you will. So with the substrate consciousness as a platform, a diving board, one may break through the pristine awareness. And uh, once again, I forgot that this excerpt from the Tantra was here. We went through it last week. Comments, questions, suggestions, announcements, realizations, platforms. I've just been finding reading this material, and especially this week, I've been finding myself contemplate, contemplating so much like the fine differences between a thought, being mindful, awareness, inquiry, or like awareness, but not in a Vipassana sense. It's been it's been very interesting to really like contemplate this what each of those means and the subtle differences um it's been challenging but very cool like awareness of awareness what is awareness at all <laughs> and what does it mean to be aware of something versus mindful of something and how does that differentiate from thinking about something um so yeah i don't know it's it's been eye-opening and cool yeah, that's that's great. That's exactly what we should be doing. It's like thinking about what all these different aspects of mind are and all these different practices and how one experiences them and where and so on and so forth. Awareness is generally said to be the knowing faculty, the knowing aspect of mind. There's discursive knowing and there's non-discursive knowing. Thank you for that. What else? Mary Beth. Is space the relaxation quality of mind? I think so. I think he's using space or the tradition affiliates space with the stillness aspect of mind, which is very much what we connect with through relaxation uh, is stillness the still still mind when they talk about finding the still mind as opposed to the moving mind so then what would be the so stillness is the avenue to experiencing uh, space wait you, you're saying that you think that his use of space in all of this is the same as stillness mm. Not in all of this, no. Not earlier on when we were talking about the external space and the internal space. Space is like the container. Yeah, it seems like it's a little different. than I, I would think that that's different. I mean, in some ways, stillness has a quality of being like space. I don't think there's like synonymous. Space is the field of play. Stillness and movement happen within space. <laughs> there you have it. 
Well, I wasn't so much with stillness, but I mean, it relaxation. Is that is that the space of what all activity happens in or something? I don't know. We have a lot of activity. We don't have relaxation. We don't have a lot of activity. We have more space. It's more relaxation. I don't know. Just this idea like relaxation is coming up a lot. Relax. It's very important. Yeah. A lot of different. It comes at you from lots of different places. We're stressed as a culture. We have to relax. He's telling us you have to drop into the relaxation. It just seems like a big theme everywhere. Yeah, it is. And like not so easy. Like, it, you know, oh, just relax. Just no, relax. Like it's it is. not very easy, is it? Yeah. So I'm. Well, certainly there's the, I, the sense of um, relax relaxation is the way to connect with space <clears throat> right because it's so intimidating yeah yeah space is overwhelming otherwise mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that exercise though I mean or that instruction I mean I've never really read it that pith about just visualize something and then we'll let it fade and then that's the mind yeah that is so cool isn't that a neat instruction that's that's really helpful yeah i've never seen it anywhere other than in his we came upon it earlier in the course as well that's it's very helpful instruction there's some mahamudra that's kind of like that but not not yeah Mm Yeah, it's cool. Okay, let us uh, dedicate and end. Thank you. And then I think uh, next week is our last class, by golly. So uh, traditionally we all bring refreshments and share refreshments. So bring enough uh, for everyone. And we'll all share whatever we have (laughs) through our Zoom cameras. In this case, we'll have to be sharing visually, not tactilely, I think. Yeah, what's the Contract difference? what you were saying of doing your scan tactilely and not visually. Mm, this case, right. That's right. <laughs> okay, we'll see you then. Uh, by this merit, may all obtain omniscience made to feed the enemy. Wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, thickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you. Caitlin's going to bring <laughs> bring the pizza. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Nice to see you. Take care. See you soon.